This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled "What Is Love," recorded July twenty seventh, two thousand and three, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So, the question this morning is, "What is love?" And I have a question. Yeah, you have a question. Go ahead. Could you also answer the question, "What is life"? Oh, how about reality and truth? I mean, why stop there? Uh, I think I think this is going to be related. And at the end, if it hasn't answered your question, why don't you ask it again? In all traditions, one of the ways to describe reality, God, the divine, whatever, is love. Love, or a constellation of similar terms. Love, bliss, compassion, terms like that. And as I said, I didn't prepare this, so I'm going to give you some quotes here that are paraphrases. Don't hold me to them. They're not exact quotes. But the great Hindu Upanishads say, Brahman, which is their name for the ultimate reality, Brahman is bliss. And from bliss, all things come. And all things live by bliss, and to bliss all things return. In fact, the ultimate nature of reality in Hinduism is often described as sat-chit-ananda. Sat means being, chit means consciousness, ananda means bliss. So it's, it's intrinsic to the nature of reality, is what they're saying. The Sufis, or the mystics of Islam, point to a saying of the prophet who asked God, when people ask me, why did you create all this, meaning this cosmos, Allah answered, I was a hidden treasure who loved or longed to be known. The love longing is one word in Arabic, can be translated either way. And then the Sufi commentary on that is, this whole cosmos comes into being because of God's love you'll find the exact same thing in the Christian religion, at least among the mystics. Dionysius the Arapagate, who was one of the founders of Christian mysticism, says that the whole universe comes into being because God could not contain his overflowing love, divine love. And then he goes on for passages and passages about how divine love is ecstatic and won't let anybody be lovers of themselves, but everybody has to be lovers of something else. And so the cosmos has to have other things that everything can love. And it all comes back to the divine. The same thing in the Jewish tradition, among the Kabbalists and the Hasids anyway. Even in Taoism, which seems to us Westerners perhaps to be at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's no anthropomorphic sort of God, and they don't talk about the Tao the great way as loving in that sense, but the Tao Te Ching talks about the way creates all these myriad creatures, which is everything in the cosmos, and asks for nothing back, doesn't demand credit, doesn't take credit, and so forth and so on. And so then the sage should act in the same way. You see, the sage should act without demanding credit, without wanting anything in return. So this is uh, the same idea, the same feeling of this giving, this selfless giving. 
And in Buddhism, of course, they don't have any God, but they say that part of Buddha nature is compassion, particularly in the Tibetan traditions, often put as the union between compassion and wisdom, or bliss and emptiness. So compassion, love, bliss, this constellation of terms used by these various traditions applies to the ultimate reality. And then because of that is somehow very important in our own personal paths. So let's try to see what this means that the ultimate reality has this quality. And I'm going to make some English distinctions here, which are my distinctions you won't find in the great traditions. And when we look at the great traditions, of course, we're dealing with translations, or I am because I don't speak the languages, translations of words from very different languages and so forth. And one of the tasks we have today in this contemporary society where so many cultures and religions are coming together and exchanging dialogue and all that is to find some way to organize these expressions and to talk about them some more generic way. So I'm going to make a distinction here between bliss love and compassion that maybe closely follows more what those terms mean in English anyway. And I think it's, uh, if we had a generic language, all mystics would agree that, that if we wanted to use the highest designation here, we would talk about bliss. We would talk about the nature of ultimate reality as being inherently blissful or innately blissful. And mystics make a very big distinction, particularly the Hindu mystics and the Buddhist mystics, about innate bliss and manifest bliss. Manifest bliss is that bliss you feel. When you feel blissful and you feel an emotion and there's a certain state, which is ephemeral, will pass away. But they say beyond that, there is this innate bliss that does not pass away. It's not a particular state. It is really in the inherent nature of reality. And we might get some idea of this if you've ever been uh, momentarily lucid in dreamless sleep. For most people, actually being momentarily lucid in dreamless sleep, the first thing that arises is fear because there's nothing there. It's just like a big abyss. But the other possibility is that you get a glimpse of what this bliss is. Because ultimately, this state of dreamless sleep is a state of pure consciousness. Pure consciousness without a subject, without an object, there's nothing there. And it is inherently blissful, that condition. And bliss is too crude a word here. We have to use words, but it's too crude a word. Uh, sometimes it's been described as light, just pure light, not visual light, not a physical light. Augustine, St. Augustine, the great Christian mystic, uh, describes this Gnostic flash he had where he talks about how he rose above his own mind and he arrived at that which is. He doesn't even want to use the term God because God's too anthropomorphic. That which is. And then he talks about, oh, who knows that knows love. Who knows love knows God. Who knows God knows truth. This is love, truth, light. And it's this light of awareness, light of consciousness. So this consciousness, this limitless ocean of consciousness is inherently blissful. Now, what is the quality of this bliss, aside from just happiness? I mean, ultimately, this is the whole thing. God is happy. Buddha nature is happy. The Tao is happy. I mean, the, the whole spiritual path is about happiness. I know sometimes it doesn't feel that way. Sometimes it feels like it's about a lot of work and self-observation and yes, and watching your breath, but it's ultimately about happiness. 
So when we say that this nature is blissful, we are saying that it is intrinsically happy. It's a happiness that doesn't depend on anything outside of itself. It doesn't need anything outside of itself. It also has the quality of selflessness. Selflessness in the sense of not grasping, not pushing away, not judging, not making distinctions. Perhaps the closest we know in our human experience is motherly love. That kind of love you might have for a child, especially a younger child, they get harder as they get older, <laughs> that is totally forgiving of whatever they do. Do you know what I mean? It's not making any judgments. It's totally selfless. It doesn't want anything. So if the you know, little infant throws up on you, it's okay. There's no blaming. There's no rejecting. There's no pushing away. Whatever it does, there's this space that will accept whatever it does. Often, particularly in the Eastern traditions, they talk about consciousness being like a mirror. And just the way whatever you put in front of the mirror, the mirror reflects without any pushing away, without any grasping. This is the purest form of selflessness we can talk about. Do you understand? There's no sense of emotion in here yet or emotion at all. If we go back to like the dreamless sleep image, there's no motion and there's no judgment. There's no pushing away. It's a total... Uh, potentiality to embrace and accept whatever might arise in it. Uh, just a, a naked, blissful space. Now, in this naked, blissful space, there is a power or an energy that mystics have called love. And I wouldn't use the word love until we start talking about activating this power or this energy. It is the energy of creativity, we might say. And we have to be very careful not to try to uh, align this with some physicist's idea of energy. This is not an energy that you can necessarily go out and measure. Although somewhere along the line, we might have a worldview that sees the connection here. I'm using energy in a metaphorical sense right now. I'm not trying to say that I'm coming out with a new physics. I would say, uh, using uh, the terminology we've developed at the center, it is the power to distinguish, which is very close to what the Gospel of John says when it says in the beginning was the word. The word is the power to distinguish. Many myths of many spiritual traditions contain the idea that the world comes into being by naming or thinking. God thinks up the world or names the world. It's the same idea, the logos, the word creates things through imagination. In many traditions, the mystics say this world is nothing but a big dream. And so just the way consciousness can dream dreams at night and create whole cosmoses and worlds out of what? Imagination. And out of itself in a certain sense, you know, there's nothing in those worlds other than consciousness. They're made of consciousness. Well, the same thing is true of this world. This is why Chung Su says, you know, this world is nothing but a dream. Someday everybody's going to wake up and realize it. Buddha means the one who is awake. So this is a, another very common theme that runs through all mystical traditions, that this world is somehow a creation of this divine imagination. So from a mystic's point of view, it's not like God sits up here and diddles around, you know, with one of those erector sets you had as a kid, you know, and creates something and then winds it up and lets it go and it sort of runs around and, you know. No, it's much more like uh, in the Hindu tradition, the image of Shiva. 
and that this cosmos is a dance of Shiva, that, that Shiva dances. And you look at a dancer and the dance, you can't separate the dance from the dancer. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The artwork is the creator and there's no difference. And so literally this cosmos in that sense is a dance. It is a creation, an ongoing dance that's being created by the divine. And the only difference is when we see a statue of Shiva, we see a thing there and mystics say it's just like that except there's no thing there. There's a, a nothing there. An emptiness there as the Buddhists would say. Or as the Christian mystics would say, Dionysius the Arpegate says, you know, God, the, the uh, unnameable, is in everything. It's in the dew and the stars and a rock and a stone. It surrounds us. It's everywhere. And yet in itself, it is nothing. Nothing. So again, something we can't get our concepts and our ideas around, ultimately. But we can just talk about it poetically. So... The cosmos itself is an expression of this love, which is an expression of this bliss. So the love is the movement of the bliss into form, from formlessness into form, the creation of form, the creation of the cosmos. And it has that quality of that creative love that people feel when they are creating things When there's a pure creation going on, they don't have one eye on how much money they're going to make or what kind of fame they're going to get. You know, when you're really totally thrown into some creative activity and there's no self-centered thought in that. It's just the activity itself. And notice it's blissful. It feels good. That's why we love to do it. That's why human beings are creative. We manage to, you know, muck it up when we start then worrying about how much money we're going to make and how we're going to be famous and who's more famous than we are and all those things. But the initial impulse, the initial instinct to do this is that divine spark. So this love, what the mystics talk about at this level, is the love of creativity, the love of giving, if we like, the creating and giving and outflowing and informing that asks nothing back like the great Tao asks nothing in return, is not attached to anything, doesn't do this for any uh, self-centered reason to get something back. It's a total free gift. It's a grace. And that's another word that's part of this constellation of words. And it's interesting in our own experience. We apply the word grace, even non-religious people apply it to some action of a dancer or something that is graceful, full of grace, that has that quality of ease, You can even apply it to sports. I used to be a football fan back in the 70s, and there was this uh, uh, receiver. He played for the Dallas Cowboys. I've forgotten his name now. He had three defenders around him, and he would just fly up through the air. I mean, there's nothing more graceful in the world. It was like watching a dancer. It was fabulous. You didn't even think about who was winning or not. Just to watch him was wonderful. I don't know if any of you ever saw... Secretariat run. Does anybody know who Secretariat was? The great horse? He was a great racehorse, and this was like the Kentucky Derby or one of the other crowns. And as they're racing, as they're coming around the last lap, he starts pulling away from the pack. And then the cameraman can't hold them all together. You know, usually it's pretty tight. There's a length or two, but you know, within one shot. So the cameraman starts having to go back and forth. Well, the distance opens up, distance opens up, and then finally. The camera forgets about that and just settles on Secretariat. And it's just watching this beautiful horse run. That's it. There's no more competition. The race is over. And it's just watching this magnificent, gorgeous creature. That's what we're talking about here. 
So this idea of love, is this love that is totally giving, totally selfless, it just does it for the hell of it, you could say. It just does it because it loves to do it. There's no other answer for it. Then, the final step here is when delusion comes into play, and this is as much of a mystery as anything else, really, that these creatures, which are figments of the imagination of this divine consciousness, which are dream characters, all going about their business, all start to lose track that they are dream characters and start to think that they're real and have some independent existence from this divine reality and are in conflict with it. And the whole, you know, the whole round of suffering starts. And in the East, they say you fall into delusions, samsara and so forth. In the West, you fall into sin or heedlessness, forgetfulness. All these are different ways of saying we've lost track of reality, of who we truly are, our true nature, which is just that divine consciousness because there's nothing else like when Shiva's dancing there's nothing else but Shiva's dancing and we lose track of all that and then we fall into suffering and then this love turns into compassion in response to the suffering in a certain sense it is the whole consciousness that is suffering that is what compassion means to suffer with passion and calm Come with passion is suffering in the ancient Latin sense of the passion of Christ or something. So the divine itself, this consciousness, manifests now as compassion for its own creatures, if we want to put it that way. The Buddhists have a very nice way of putting that. They look at the whole world as a mandala, which is a balanced structure, a structure of wholeness, as a mandala of compassion generated by Buddha nature, to awaken us poor suffering beings. But that is only a response because they're suffering. And in any moment, if the suffering ends, that energy of compassion reverts back to love. And then after a while, that energy of love reverts back to its ultimate ground state, if you like, of just pure naked bliss. So do you see the the pattern I'm trying to draw here? Just as a way for us to try to get a handle on these teachings. Even these distinctions are just as imaginary as any other distinctions. Don't mistake the finger for the moon. But just so we can talk about it. So this, if you like, is an overview of the mystic's view of the cosmos and what is going on here. Most of it behind the scenes, so to speak. We do experience suffering. We do experience compassion. I mean, most of the time we're experiencing suffering and so forth. The other things we get glimpses of behind the scenes, but we're not normally walking around aware of it. We're not normally walking around aware that we are, you know, the fingers of Shiva doing this dance. We normally walk around thinking who's going to take advantage of us and, you know, whatnot. So, if this is true, and let's just say for a moment, you don't have to believe it, but if this is true, then how do we wake up to this Reality. How do we, in a certain sense, get back to our original truth, our original vision, our original identity as this consciousness? How do we realize it? How do we recognize it? How do we do that? Well, one of the fundamental things you can do is to imitate it. Just like the Taoist sage imitates the Tao. This is the nature of the Tao. Well, you act like the Tao. Don't worry about your philosophies, all that stuff. Try it. See what happens. I mean, what do you got to lose? Everybody that I've ever met always thinks that 
Well, someday, if I just, if I get smart enough, if I get clever enough, if I get talented enough, if I get educated enough, whatever, someday, if I pursue my own happiness, I will get it. If I look out for number one and get what I need and get what I want, that someday I will get there. I've never, never met anybody who arrived that way at all. I've met people who thought they arrived for a period of time, and I did it several times in my life, and then it all started to unravel again. So what do you got to lose, is what the mystics say. Well, why not try it the other way? Why not, instead of living your life in a self-centered way, a selfish way, live it in a selfless way? Instead of trying to get, get, get all the time, why don't you try to give, give, give all the time? What would happen? It really comes down to a principle that simple. If you want happiness, you have to behave in a realistic way. As long as you're behaving based on a delusion, you can never be happy. The only way to be happy is to be realistic because reality is happiness. Happiness is not something other than reality. So in all traditions, in all traditions, 50% of practice is the practice of love and compassion. Selfless love and compassion. Now, our love and compassion is mixed wherever we start from. In 99% of the cases, it's full of grasping and desire and all that. And that's okay. You start trying to do it and you'll see, oh, what is self-centered desire here and what was genuine love and compassion and all you have to do is pay attention it's not a lot of hard work there's nothing philosophically to figure out about it you just start looking when you do things you'll see oh i thought that was pretty selfless but now i see hmm there really was an attachment in there it'll reveal itself to you i'll tell you just one story to illustrate this which a lot of you've heard before but it's by jack uh, not jack kornfeld um joseph goldstein a Western-born, dedicated Buddhist practitioner. He knows all about compassion, all that. And he tells a story about being in India. And like anybody else who goes to India, so I've been told since I've never been to India, you have to figure out how you're going to deal with all the poor beggar children and all that. You know, I mean, are you going to give them everything right away and go around like a naked sadhu? Or are you going to dole it out? Or how you, you know? So whatever he came to, he figured out how he was going to deal with it. And then he was down in the marketplace and... They were selling mangoes or something. I think it was mangoes. And he bought a mango, and he turned around, and here's this little beggar boy, you know, with a loaded belly, just like that. And he already done his mitzvah for the day, his good deeds, you know. But so what? He said, okay, give the boy the mango. The boy took the mango, turned around, walked away. <laughs> Goldstein said, you know, not even a smile not even a nod of recognition that I had done something wonderful here. That was his first reaction. But then, because he's a self-observing practitioner, he says, oh, attachment. This wasn't just a free gift. I wanted something back. I wanted to be recognized as a great, compassionate person who gives mangoes away. You know what I mean? <laughs> so the, the situation became a teaching for him. That's what I mean. You just start doing. Just start the doing and the situations will teach you. They'll show you. They'll reveal more and more. And if you are a mystical practitioner, you don't then get out the flagellation whip and say, oh, I'm selfish. You rejoice that the situation showed you this. You start to see what the Buddhists mean when they say all this is a mandala of compassion teaching you. 
In fact, it can get to seem like the whole universe is organized for your spiritual education. <laughs> Everything that happens. And it is true, by the way. <laughs> Not you, the ego, but you, the divine. It's the divine teaching the divine, and that is what the universe is, how it's organized. It is true. So, if we follow whatever spark of compassion, of love, that we experience just in our normal life, if we follow that, not write it off as just some serendipitous moment, not look at it with a lot of suspicion, as we learn to do as we get older, do you know what I mean? We get more and more bitter, more and more defensive, more and more armored. So we have to undo that. We have to reverse the process. And we just do it simply from starting wherever you are. You don't have to run off and join the Sisters of Charity, you know. <laughs> it's very simple. I mean, every day, every moment, practically, there's some little act of compassion you can do, just for the ants and the spiders in your house, or whatever it is. It's really hard not to have some little thing to do. And this is just an enormous part of the path. In fact, the Sufis say, and I love this, and it's in other traditions as well, similar images, the whole path is the enactment of selfless love and the pursuit of truth. And those are the two wings by which the bird flies. And if you don't have one, it can't fly. You cannot fly on just one wing. It needs both. And so it's half the path. It's literally half the path. So whatever spark that appears in our life, if we just start following it, that's the love part. And then the truth, the wisdom part, is observing what happens when we do. Just observing, that's all. You know, it's that simple. All the other practices of the path and everything else is really to help us do that. They are not crucial or essential to the path. There are some people who are so mindful all the time because they're so curious, they don't need to do any meditation. They're not distracted with a lot of self-centered ideas. Krishnamurti, who was a, a contemporary teacher of the last century, he didn't believe in any meditation. It was all about inquiry, inquiry. And then if you read his biography, it's very interesting. When he was a young man in London on his spiritual path, and all his friends, you know, are out, I don't know, drinking and rowing and whatever they do in London, you know. <coughs> he was walking around the street saying, what is this? What is this? What is the nature of everything here? Do you see what I mean? He, of course he didn't have to do any meditation. Most of us aren't like that. Most of us do need to train our minds to be attentive, to be mindful to have our attention not totally absorbed and wrapped up in this little story of I that's constantly being generated. But that's secondary. All these practices are secondary. Very useful, and I'm a big believer in their utility because I'm a good example of it because they were very useful to me. And I think there's a lot of um, false teaching around about how they're totally unnecessary, just sort of hang out there and realize your true self and wait for grace to strike or something. But the truth of the matter is, it's just these two principles, however you do it, love and truth. And they're absolutely identical, ultimately, because the truth that mystics teach is the truth of selflessness. There is no self. All this thing that you spend your whole life defending and protecting and enhancing and afraid of losing and it's going to die, it just doesn't exist. It just is not there. That's so simple. And love is that action that arises out of selflessness. True love is selfless. So you could say that, that love is simply the truth in action. Was that helpful, Holly?
Very. Um, <laughs> I'm curious also, uh, the dance that we do when we say I love you. Well, what is the dance you do when you say I love you? That is very interesting. Yeah. And you can look at it either way. Either it's the dance you do when you say I love you to the divine, or it's the dance you do when you say I love you to another person, and ultimately they're the same thing. This is why uh, John says God is love. And if you can't love your brothers and sisters who you can see, how can you love God who you can't see and stuff like that? So he's just saying love is love no matter what it's directed to. The difference between in a nutshell, a worldly dance of love and a spiritual dance of love is the worldly dance of love. What's behind it is what can I get out of this relationship? Whether it's to God or to another person, do you know what I mean? The spiritual dance of love is how can I divest myself of self and give more and more? There's a nice image of this, a graphic image about hell. This guy dies and he goes to the big Hilton in the sky and he lived a pretty good life so St. Peter he's a Christian so he gets St. Peter if you're not Christian you get others you know I know if you're a Muslim you know I think it's Gabriel who greets you there would it be Gabriel you know but anyway the guy's going to heaven you know up in the penthouse region but he says you know before I go I'd just like to take a look to see what's going on in hell and St. Peter says well sure get in the elevator you know push basement down they go the door opens there's this long, endless table full of this fantastic feast. I mean, whatever your heart desires, it's there. I don't care what it is. Boston cream pies, uh, sirloin steaks, malteds, you know, because you don't have to worry about getting fat and any of that stuff. You know, even sprouts there if you like sprouts. You know, you can eat all the stuff and not feel guilty. You know. And everybody's there around the table on two sides of the table, and they have these spoons. And these spoons are attached to their hands, so they can't take them off. And the spoons are too long. They can scoop up the food, but they can't get it in their mouths. Well, they're all sitting there trying to get this food in their mouths. This is hell. That's for all eternity. They can never get this sumptuous feast in their mouths. Never get satisfied. St. Peter says, you've seen enough? The guy says, yeah, I've seen enough. The door closes. <laughs> they go up, you know, the mezzanine, door opens. There's the same scene. The very same banquet, the very same spoons, are different people, of course, but the very same spoons attached, you can't get in your mouth, and these people are all feeding each other across the table, and they're enjoying it. So that's the difference between heaven and hell. So the dance of love, worldly and spiritual, is just that. And the dance part, and we shouldn't neglect this, because even falling into delusion and the spiritual path and all that is itself part of the dance. It's not a mistake. So we should learn to enjoy what the dance has to show us as we are dancing, even when it shows us those selfish things, like Joseph Goldstein saw. And when he tells the story, he laughs at himself. It's not a negative story, it's a positive story. It's a delightful story in his own view, even though it's a story on him. So that's how we can dance. Bonnie. We're sitting here listening to you talk to us in words about love and what I find really quite fascinating is the experiential part of it. How is this love experienced? How is it, is it, is it felt physically? And how is it you create that sensation, that feeling, that sense, that experience? And for me, a, 
I've learned to sort of identify it as a kind of feeling of warmth passing through my whole body and a tingling uh, a sort of sense of presence of my whole body and my whole body sort of tingling and warm and there's energy there. That's right. It's curious to me how it's experienced physically. Yeah, but I would say every experience is ultimately an experience of love because every experience is experience of the divine. So even things like anger and stuff are ultimately experiences of love. So if we have one particular physical experience, we identify that is love, and then we're practicing to have that one particular experience, like all other experiences, going to come and go and come and go. And then we're practicing to have it and it's going to go. And then you know what? Then it's just like any attachment we develop to anything impermanent. We're always practicing to get that. We get it, but then it goes, and then we're disappointed and have to go back and practice some more. And I think there is some value, particularly for people who have come to really experience love anymore in their lives, to go to workshops, that heart-opening kind of workshops and stuff like that, and people can actually experience something they haven't experienced in years because they've been so armored and you know whatnot. So I'm not saying there's no value in that. But generally speaking, for an ongoing practice, I think... You don't worry about the love. You worry about looking at what prevents the love. If you can identify that, like just like Joseph Goldstein did, if you can identify the obstacles, the attachments, you see them and then you let them go. Either right in the moment or it'll be habitual, it'll come back and then the next time and there'll be a moment where it just sort of lets go. And then whenever there's a release of an attachment, there's automatically love. You see what I mean? So if we do that, then we tap into what the Buddhists call that compassion that does not have to be generated, but it's always available. And I think that's a much better way to look at it. And this is the exact same equivalent of in the more theistic traditions where God's love is always available. God's grace is always available. It's not that we have to do things to earn it. In fact, you can't earn it. It's a free gift. But what we can do is recognize where we block it, so to speak with our attachments, with our selfishness. And we let that go, and lo and behold, it has a kind of miraculous thing. It's not something we can manipulate, really, ultimately. Yes? Uh, you posed the question, um, what have we got to lose? Um, of course, exactly what we have to lose is ourselves. <laughs> and it seems to me um, that is all very inspirational, but it seems kind of sugar-coated because you haven't directly addressed the issue that we have to be willing to die. And it seems to me that that's exactly the mistake that I've been making and most of us make, is we want this sugar-coated spirituality, but we don't want to die. And therefore, I know that the teacher Ken Wilber calls that boomeritis. Uh, could you address that? Because it seems to be the, the exact problem we're, we're stuck in. Come back the week after next. My Enlightenment Day talk is going to be on spiritual death. I will just say this. You are right in a certain sense. It, it would be sugar-coated if it were not for the fact of death. That's why I still stick with what I said. What do you have to lose? Everybody's worried they're going to lose themselves. They're going to die. And I got news for you. Stop worrying about it. It's going to happen. You know? Very few things are absolutely certain in life. And it said, death and taxes, even taxes with Bush around isn't certain. <laughs> but death will remain certain. But is that death certain, or is it not uh, a voluntary thing? Do we not have to will it ourselves? Like the great mystics are willing to die to go through the dark night of the soul. But are the rest of us, am I willing to do that? 
Uh, it's a great topic. I'm going to give a whole talk on it. I hate to jump into it now. But see, there are problems with this whole idea of willing. Because if there really is no self, who is doing the willing? And if there's somebody willing, that perpetuates the delusion of the very self that has to die. Because as long as I'm there willing myself to die or willing myself to surrender or whatever term you want to throw in there, then as long as that activity is going on, that is what's creating the illusion of a self. So this is the point at which the effort we put into practice and the grace come together. There's a point here beyond which you cannot do anything. And so it's at that point that a surrender happens. But you are right. It is not some intellectual thing saying, oh, well, someday I'm going to die. You know, that's good enough. It is an experiential sense of surrender happening. And it can feel very much like death itself. And I speak from experience. So if any of you are interested in that topic, come back two Sundays from now. Since we're talking about death, I'm wondering if you know the, the practice of death. You're familiar with that. The practice of death? death. I'm familiar with a number of practices of death. Well, can I practice dying? Yes. I mean, it depends on what level you're talking about. Just to give you one example, another vast subject, and that's not exactly the equivalent of what he's talking about, but a lot of people in this country think Tantra, especially Tibetan Tantra, means sex yoga. If you go down these New Age bookstores, there are books on tantric yoga, you know, and they have Western-looking young men and women who look like they just stepped out of a Hollywood agency, you know, <laughs> performing tasteful sexual acts. It's, it's for people who... <laughs> you know, if that's your bag, that's fine. But that is not really what Tantra is about. And there are sexual practices in Tibetan yoga, but they're very different from the way they're presented there. They take years and years and years of training. I mean, this one Tibetan master said, if you're interested in sex, go down to a singles bar. Don't take up sexual yoga. You'll be an old man or woman before you get to it. But most of Tantra is about manipulating, in their terms, the subtle energies of the body, bringing them into the central channel, bringing them into the heart chakra, I believe, and it might vary slightly from different systems, because they believe that is what happens at the moment of death. So you're both psychologically and physiologically trying to duplicate the moment of death without actually going all the way, so you can come back. Because in that tradition, as well as many traditions, the moment of death is one of the most supreme opportunities for awakening. It's a supreme opportunity for awakening because it's a moment very much like dreamless sleep. The mind stops functioning, emotions stop functioning, you know, the world starts disappearing from consciousness. And if you can be lucid when that's happening, when everything's gone, what you see left is God. I mean, but there's nothing left, but that is God. That's paradoxical. So this is a death practice. This is the most uh, literal death practice that I'm aware of in any of the great traditions. It's a practice literally of, in all respects, dying, except for the final push over the top. So that's one death practice. But there are a lot of other death practices as well. If you're interested, you could take a look at my little book called um, Through Death's Gate, dedicated to one of our practitioners. Oh, okay. Well, I talked about three practices in that, and there, there are other practices as well. Yes? For me, the greatest illustrator of unconditional love is the love that I have for my children. And I can say that I, I can look, and I have looked at my kids and said, I would die for you. I would do anything for you, especially when they're in trouble. And I have done many, many things. And the barometer is, would I do that for anybody else that I see? 
Do I feel that way about everybody else around me? If I were you, I'd put it in this terms. Would I potentially do it for everybody else around me? Right. Because as long as you're living a householder's life, living a householder's life comes with a game that we play. And the game has certain differences built into the game, relative differences. So part of the game is you are more responsible for your kids than for your next door neighbor's kids and more responsible for your next door neighbor's kids than you are for the kids who live uh, on the other side of the continent and more responsible for them than the kids who live in Tibet as the general rule of the game. This is why if you get a little thing from CARE or something, one of these organizations, and it shows the poor starving children in Africa and you look at that, you as a householder, do not have the right to take your whole family savings, your children's education, sell your house, write a check, and send it off. You see what I mean? Now, if you're not going to be a householder, if you're going to be a total renunciate, that's one of the freedoms of the being a renunciate. That no longer applies. If you are a total renunciate like Ramana Maharshi was, then anybody who comes to you is equal. This totally levels the playing field there, see? But the point is, do you know that you're playing this game? Because the circumstances could arise where it might be both your householder duty and your spiritual duty to sacrifice your life for somebody else's kids you don't even know. So there should be that quality of readiness. It's always the recognition. This is a game. We play by the rules up to a point, but the rules are not set in stone. Like any game, you know, like basketball. Basketball is no fun unless you play by the rules. If everybody starts breaking the rules right and left shooting from out of bounds, the whole game falls apart, you know what I mean? But basketball is still just basketball. And, you know, the kids, when they play basketball, have fun, younger kids. As we get older, for a lot of people, it ceases to be so much fun. You know, people start betting on the games and they get in trouble that way and this and that and all sorts of things happen. But initially, it's fun. So otherwise, you know, people get overwhelmed with this idea that I have to have compassion for everybody and everything in the world. And then not only they get overwhelmed, they start having this negative sense of self-guilt. Oh, here I am. I'm a rich American. I've got this car in my driveway. There are people in the world who don't have anything. Do you know what I mean? If you watch closely those sorts of stories that go on in the mind, it's all about I, me, right? What a terrible person I am. How selfish I am. I'm awful. The whole world's suffering depends on me. You know, the, the mind won't let go of this. I've always said it does not care. The ego does not care whether it's the hero or the villain or the victim or whatever, as long as it gets the star. And boy, guilt trips, is, you can go on and on. You can star, you know, through soap opera after soap opera after soap opera. You just shine right at the center stage, you know. And if anybody starts to crowd you on, worse than you are. Believe me, you don't know what worse is. <laughs> Somebody else said, yes. Well, I guess my question is kind of silly, but it actually has bothered me for some time. You would think that a person who had realized the innate bliss um, and love would also manifest that. And so there, there are so-called enlightened teachers who are also kind of like assholes. <laughs> is, that, is that possible or is, you know, I mean, how, 
Is it possible for someone's life to manifest in ways that you just shake your head and you go, how could they do that? Yeah, look, this again is a judgment call, and it's very important for people to make these judgment calls. In our library, we have an editorial policy. We try to be as loose as possible and give the benefit of the doubt to teachers. You know, here's a teacher who claims to be enlightened. Well, there's stories one way or another, but unless there's really some overwhelming evidence that there's something really abusive going on, they generally get the benefit of the doubt. Occasionally, we have thrown people out. There was the heir to... Um, uh, Trunkpa, right. And his name was the heir... Ozil Tenzin. Western-born. Trungpa died. He took over. He had AIDS. He knowingly slept with his students all over the place, gave them AIDS, and he had some sort of karmic justification for it or whatever. And it wasn't like other people were accusing of him this. He was, you know, admitting to it and saying, yes, but you don't understand. Well, I don't care. I don't understand. He's out of the library, though. <laughs> now, maybe, you know, in the, in the great uh, nirvana in the sky... He'll reveal something we all didn't know. But, the, the, you know, you make the judgment the best you can based on what's happening. But I think this, first of all, it's important to be careful. Because a lot of the times we have to sort out, is it our image of what a loving, compassionate person is that we're being disappointed with? You see me comparing it to what we would like to happen. And then it's this narrow definition of love as a specific emotion. This is where we're getting to a specific feeling. That love can express itself in what do not seem to us to be loving actions or, you know, emotions, such as anger, you know. And those of you who have kids might know this very well. If your child runs out in the street in front of a car, a small child, and there's two different ways you could handle that. One, you could say, Johnny, come over here. Let's sit down. I want to talk to you about this. You know, cars are very dangerous, and I don't think it's a good idea that you run. Or you could say, Johnny, what are you doing? Don't you know you could get killed? Don't you ever run out in the street again? In a lot of cases, anyway, the last would be more compassionate and loving. It gets the kids' attention. It makes the point, you know? Whereas the other is just parents yakking away, you know? It's not communicating the love. The love can be communicated through the energy of anger. The difference is, deluded anger, we want to hurt the person. In loving anger, we're using that energy in a loving way. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah. I think that what, what I'm probably thinking of more is, is, is it possible for certain kind of annoying personality traits to continue on? Like, you know, I, annoying to who? Let me ask that question. Annoying to who? Well, I think there are things like, like where, when you see teachers, for instance, humiliate students in thinking that that is going to help them. Okay. There are general rules of society, and there's a good place to start, but teachers do do radical things. There is such a thing as crazy wisdom, and it's recognized in all the traditions, not just some modern phenomena. There were three great, let's see, uh, Tibetan teachers in the um, Kagyu tradition, uh, Marpa, Milaropa, no, Talopa, Marpa, Milaropa. The middle one, I think it was Marpa, had a reputation of beating people up. It's like being in the army. You'd come to him and he'd say, you know, build me a tower out of stone. You'd work all week. He'd come and he'd say, that's terrible. Take it down. And then take it all down. He'd come back and he'd say, build it up again. You know, it was like a drill sergeant. I think he was doing this to... Yeah. But he was doing it for his sake, you know. Zen masters whack their students traditionally and treat them terribly sometimes, you know. But they're doing it to shake them out of, you know, a particular trap of delusion. So it's the motivation that's really important. 
So just to walk into a situation and make a snap judgment, I don't think is a good idea. But you live with someone for a while and you can start to get a sense, do they have a personal agenda here? Uh, are they defensive, you know, when they're being criticized or whatever? You've got to trust your intuition. I don't know. They're afraid of being exposed. They won't let anybody contradict them. It's not just one case. It's a whole pattern. And it's your responsibility as a student to walk away from that. Even if everybody else around is saying, well, our teacher does all this for our own benefit. Well, if you don't think so, you, you'll find a teacher who you will have a better mesh with. <clears throat> so we make these judgments, rightly so, at different levels. What's good for us? Maybe this teacher's not right for me, but I don't know whether he's right for the other people or she's right for the other people in that sangha. Maybe they found the right teacher for them. You know, I have a little humility of that. If they're committing crimes, well, I have a duty as a citizen to go report it, you know. So all these factors come into play. It's not too different than what we do outside, except that you want to really be looking at the motivation now because this teacher is supposed to be doing this for your good for your realization, for your recognition, not for their good. And when you start to get a sense of that, that would be, for me anyway, that's the dividing line, the judgment there, so. Yes? But somewhat related to this, just because somebody becomes enlightened, doesn't their conditioned behavior through a, a lifetime of growing continue on in some part to, that would manifest and all of a sudden somebody's not just pure and holier than thou and, uh, well, I mean, like somebody may be getting angry more often than one would expect. Or somebody being loud and obnoxious and talking like they're from New York because they were, grew up in New York and this and that, yeah. <laughs> but that, that only bothers you people on the West Coast. It doesn't bother anybody in New York. In fact, when I go back to New York, they say, what's the matter with you? You're a little quiet. You've been spending too much time out there in that laid-back West Coast scene. So, But look, it's self-centered conditioning. This is very important. All behavior is conditioned behavior in a certain sense. I mean, there are some spontaneous forms of behavior, but... I speak English because I was conditioned to speak English. This body-mind, let's say, speaks English because it was conditioned to it. Do you know what I mean? Lao Tzu spoke Chinese because that body-mind was conditioned to speak Chinese. And if this body-mind wants to learn Chinese, it's got to do what anybody would do uh, and go down to the U of O or whatever they teach Chinese and try to learn it. Now, this body-mind would probably have been a disadvantage. It's never been very good at learning languages. Do you know what I mean? So our tastes in food are conditioned, uh, our, our tastes in dress, you know, how we dress. I mean, I have to overcome a lot of New York condition to wear this foo-foo thing, you know. <laughs> I grew up wearing leather jackets, you know, and camel cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But the two things, the, any kind of conditioned behavior, you're not locked into it. So there's the possibility of a spontaneous breaking out of the behavior. So I'm conditioned to like, uh, you know, prime rib and things like that. But if there's nothing else on the menu and they have sprouts, and yeah, I'll eat it. I won't suffer from it. So that's the big difference. And then the other part is the self-centered conditioning. It's not the conditioning that's the problem. It's all conditioned around this illusion of I. So it's like the I is, oh, I think there's some term in chaos theory now or something about a, an attractor. Oh, you scientists about what? Strange attractor. Well, the self is a strange attractor. It doesn't exist, but it still attracts. Like, so and that's the conditioning we really want to pay attention to on a spiritual path. What is conditioned by the sense of self that I have to defend or push away or enhance or whatever? That's the behavior we're really looking to break. All right. Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to stay, have some tea, 
check out the library. Those of you who want to get together, we'll go outside on the patio. Let's, in about 10 minutes.